Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Courtney Cox, Associate Professor of Law at Fordham University law School of Law. We will discuss her article, Legitimizing Lies. So welcome to the show, Courtney. Thanks, Brian. I'm so, so happy to be here. I'm really excited to have you on because I think this paper is great. It speaks to a lot of things that I'm personally really interesting and <laughs> I loved I loved reading it and I can't wait to work it into to my own scholarship. I've sold um, Brian on lying. <laughs> it was a tough sell. Um, <laughs> but but for listeners who haven't had the pleasure of reading the paper yet, maybe you could start by just helping us understand what a lie is anyway. I mean, do people agree on what a lie is? No, they, they really don't. Um, so I, I take a pretty broad view of lies. Um, I think any plausible philosophical analysis of what a lying um, is basically has three requirements. So you need uh, the liar to state that piece. Um, they need to believe that it's false or probably false. Uh, and they need to do an do so in what's considered to be a, a warranting context. So sort of they need to, to do it in a context where they're inviting you to believe in the truth of what is what has been said. Um, and I think that's most contexts, right? We can almost think of it by comparison to the contexts that are carved out of that, like theater or making a joke. Um, and there may be situations in which we have overlapping contexts happen. Uh, on the other side of the spectrum, there are those who try and define lies really narrowly. Uh, and usually uh, to require some sort of intent to deceive, um, int specifically an intent to instill a false belief in P. Uh, and there's been some recent philosophical work suggesting that that intent to instill the false belief is actually not required for a lie. So take um, the, uh, the student who asserts that their homework has been eaten by a dog or uh, my toddler when she tells me that uh, she she does not need her diaper changed um, or or the the mob witness who's on the stand and is lying and, and in fact maybe hoping that he's not believed but he can't tell the truth because he will be um, gotten. Uh, there are also those who include in the definition of a lying sort of a, a value judgment about lying that it's wrongfully um, making this kind of false representation. And I, I think that that makes sort of an analytic error because it makes it very difficult to then talk about whether or not um, lying is wrong. And it's usually a move that's made by those who are, who are pushing for sort of an absolutist prohibition on lying. So to the extent that people disagree about what lying is in the first place, does it, does it matter? I mean, how does that affect the way that people think about how we should think about lying? So I, I'm not a, I guess I'm not a psychologist, so I, I don't, there's, there's interesting work being done in experimental um, philosophy about kind of the relationship between concepts of moral valence and those that, that don't have that. Um, I think there, there are sort of two things that happen to the extent that people um, kind of cling on to the narrower version or something that has a moral valence, it causes them to overlook kind of large categories of things that look like lying. 
Um, and to not think about what's going on maybe in, in kind of, uh, this, I, I don't mean this about scholars who take the narrow view. They're certainly um, thinking about it, but maybe the general population, they're not, they're not necessarily recognizing things as lies that are lies. And they call them by different names, right? Bluffing, um, white lies, obfuscation. Puffery was my favorite. Puffery, yeah. <laughs> Puffery. Yeah, and um, and Hoffman has has a great article on that, um, suggesting that you know there needs to be sort of a unified approach, or because of the failure to recognize that there's there seems to be disagreement in the doctrine, and then if you if you recognize it, you can actually find some through threads that make sense. So in the paper, you suggest that the law may sometimes require lying. How could that be? I'm like, how 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 could and why would? the law require people to lie? So, so this might be helpful to kind of get into an application. So I use the, a case study of trade secrets. Um, and Brian, Brian, as you know, but for, for the non-IP nerds out, out in the audience, right? Trade secrets is uh, the law of, of commercial, basically commercial secrets. Anything that you can, any commercially valuable information that you can protect by not sharing it, um, like a recipe or an algorithm or even the security measures that you use to protect the recipe or the algorithm, um, those are trade secrets. And what the law does is it it sort of provides a backstop or a remedy for when um, somebody misappropriates or, or essentially steals that confidential information and, and uses it um, in violation of, of any agreements they might have had with you. And in order to get this kind of protection, uh, you need to have uh, taken measures yourself to protect that information. It's called the reasonable precaution requirement, sometimes called reasonably secrecy efforts. Uh, it goes by a number of names. It's it's very fact specific. It's not necessarily looking for for one um, one kind of measure. Uh, basically, you need to have done what is reasonable. Use passwords um, if you're going to enter into a joint venture. Have non disclosure agreements. And so, I think this requirement um, can could bite you if you don't undertake certain kinds of deception. Some of them might be lying about what a series ending is. And, and we've seen lots of reports coming out in the tabloids, right, about various Marvel movies having done this, about uh, Game of Thrones having maybe filmed fake endings. And now in cybersecurity, it's sort of the next big thing. So on my birthday, uh, very many thanks to PortMIT, they sent me this nice phishing email that looked like a phishing email. And it was not, in fact, a phishing email. It was PortMIT testing my defenses. You know, your package has arrived, click this link, detract, whatever. And I flagged it and uh, the IT department got back to me and said, oh, this was just a security measure. So that's an example, right? If as seems to be the case, this is becoming sort of standard best practices for protecting your confidential information um, and you fail to take them, then trade secret, you, you may be unable to enforce your trade secrets in court. So in that sense, the law might force you to lie. One example you gave in the paper I especially liked was uh, USC student film script. And I couldn't help but thinking that it would work even better if they just called it a law review article instead. Yeah, yeah. The um, In how, how I Met Your Mother when they were trying to cast the mother, the rumor has it that they that they did that on the grounds that nobody would read it. So you shouldn't, they shouldn't put legitimizing lies on the cover of that, right? Everyone's going to read that particular law review article, I hope. Uh, I certainly read it. Anyway, it was, it was great. Um, <laughs> so in the context of your discussion of, of trade secrets, you distinguish between incentivizing lying and requiring lying. And I wonder if you could kind of break down that distinction and why you think it matters. 
Yeah. So actually, I, I think that if I can push back a little, I think the distinction is maybe a little more subtle. What I'm really distinguishing between is is incentivizing lying and legitimizing or expressly condoning, right, which could include up to requiring, right? Trade secret law can do any range of those things. It can allow um, lies to satisfy a legal requirement, even if it wouldn't require you to lie. And that's different from incentivizing. So there's been some work about how by not penalizing lies in certain contexts where the incentives are so great that you're tempted to do so, right? So police interrogation tactics are a place where this has been written about. And there, the the way it sort of goes is that because the incentives are so great, by not um, penalizing lies, it, the law effectively incentivizes the use of lies because you can get some benefit. But the, lie is, the law is sort of just turning a blind eye in that situation. It's it handing out a reward, but not expressly in virtue of it, sort of pretending it doesn't happen. In the, the context, what I'm saying is, look, that's not the only response, right? The law can do something like what it does in trade secret law of acknowledging that you satisfy some legal requirement by having lied. Not because you tricked the law, but you say, look, law, I lied to this guy over here. You should give me this benefit. And the law says, yeah, okay, cool. Can you give an example of how that might work in a trade secret context? In other words, what kinds of lying might the law expect from somebody making a trade secret claim in order to show that they've used reasonable efforts to maintain confidentiality? There was a case, I think it was a bid prime versus smart procure. And basically smart procure was repeatedly trying to get into bid prime systems. They were a persistent threat, right? Anytime that um, smart procure shut it down, they, they kind of kept trying to find a new avenue in, opening up new accounts, trying to scrape the information. And so finally, what Bid Prime did was it created, sort of created a honeypot. Uh, and so it put like fake data into the system, basically in order to kind of monitor and watch uh, what Smart Procure was doing until they were able to get legal relief. So there was another case, uh, Solar City versus Pure Solar. They're both solar, basically solar products and services company. And an employee, now former employee of Solar City had been leaking customer information to Pure Solar, and so what Solar City did was they they actually went out and they they made this kind of decoy honeypot system. They put fake information into their customer database on export. So if somebody tried to export uh, customer information, they got a wrong phone number, and that phone number linked back to the honeypot. On the other end, when they would call, you'd have Solar City answering the phone and trying to get as in much information um, from the person calling in as they could, so they could trace it back to Pure Solar. Um, and so that, right, that involves multiple kinds of lies. So there's sort of, there's the lie in the database of the fake information that's being given out, right? Representing sort of, this is the phone number of this client when in fact it's not. Um, and then of course, when you call into the honeypot, the person on the receiving end of the line, sort of pretending to be that customer <laughs> so they can get as much information about, about who is, who is calling in to then report back to headquarters. Um, they cited this in their complaint. And the court recognized, they cited it in their complaint as satisfying the reasonable precaution requirements. Um, nobody fought over that. And the court further recognized that it, it provided proof of relevant timing for the application of the DTSA, and it provided proof of the value of the information stolen to meet the CFAA um, threshold. So there's, there's like a real tangible example of a court um, recognizing, sort of legitimizing this this use of lying in order to collect information and to establish value. So does that mean that any kind of lying in the context of a trade secret claim is, should be legitimate? 
or only some kinds of lying? And if the latter, like, how do we know the difference? Well, Brian, you're asking me about papers I haven't written yet. <laughs> um, so the the answer I think is is no. Not just not just any lie might might satisfy this requirement. It's certainly uh, where certainly where an unclean hands defense might be implica- implicated. Um, we've seen something analogously in the copyright context where you have copyright set, copyright trolls, your your favorite people, setting up honeypots in order to try to generate litigation revenue, and we've seen courts shut that kind of thing down. Um, right. There's also the securities laws, right? If you were to make certain lies to investors or publicly in a way that that tricked those, and and I'm I'm not, or at least not yet, an expert in any of those things. Um, I'm working on it, um, and that's one of the reasons in the paper I say, look, I think, I think we need deception specialists. And one of my mentors was like, oh yeah, yeah, of course we need like cybersecurity specialists. They're like, no, 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 we need <laughs> we need we need lying specialists. We need people who understand. Um, how to sort of thread the needle um, because right lying is sort of one of these stunts has this great article basically many many lies are covered by our criminal laws ones that are never enforced that you would never think of probably wouldn't survive a facial first amendment challenge um, but they're out there and so I think uh, understanding kind of the the implications is, is really really tricky and requires sort of an interdisciplinarity that maybe we haven't really seen in this space. Well, so you refer to lying as a dual use technology. Um, and that seems like related to the sort of tension you were just describing. I wonder if you could kind of tease out what you mean by that and how that might, that kind of framing might affect how we think about the role of lying, both in a trade secret context and maybe in other contexts as well. Yeah. So dual use technology is a phrase that's sort of borrowed from security studies. I, I used to I used to work in nuclear nonproliferation. And the issue there is that you have these technologies like say say rubber O-rings, um, that are themselves pretty benign and they have kind of civilian applications and they have weaponized applications where where they kind of right, they enable bigger weapons that can can really inflict harm and I think that's kind of a helpful way to think about lying. There, there are some lies um, that are sort of benign. Um, they're, they're passive security precautions. Um, and there are others that can be used to, to cause really great harm, to manipulate, to undermine certain kinds of, um, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't think we need to look very far to see how, how, uh, Amplifying and perpetuating what might even seem like benign lies can under come close to undermining right democratic processes, even if even if they just function by undermining the reliability of certain kinds of communication channels. So I think it is lies are. Uh, when we were previously talking, you said I didn't go far enough, and you said I I, I felt lies were good. I'm not I'm not quite willing to go that far because I think um, there are serious risks that are here, and they can be really difficult to to think about how to manage and control them. So you give an example in your paper that I really liked, which was of uh, car innovators, including parts on the car that were intended to distract photographers from what they were really innovating. And one thing that caught my attention was that you noted that a lot of people didn't feel like that was even a lie in the first place. So, I mean, I wonder if you could talk about why you think it is a lie 
and why you think it matters and maybe even like why maybe why you think it matters or is interesting that a lot of people don't feel like it's a lie in the first place all right so why do people think that it's not a lie in the first place i've i've been given a few uh reasons for that one is it's obviously fine right nobody would think that this is wrong um so that makes one of the mistakes i mentioned earlier in our discussion about kind of incorporating moral valence into your definition of lying there though there is i think an important debate about whether or not you can lie without words i talked a little bit about this at WALS uh, uh last month and and i in part because there's no sort of um verbal statement such that you can make a distinction between lying and say merely misleading uh and i think if we are you a football fan do you watch football no, okay. So maybe this this will be lost on you, but I think some listeners will get this right. The guy who fakes an injury in order to get the ref to make a call, right? He's lying without words. Um, so I, I don't think that's a, a particularly good objection. Um, and then and then the last one is that it's it's not to the extent that we can see the the car manufacturers is making uh, a statement about what the new uh, development is and knowing it to be false that it's in a warranting. People object that it's not a warrant in context. Um, and I think that's the strongest objection. I think there's questions about what the bounds of warrant in context are. Uh, but I think actually in this case, um, it's, it's a little more easily overcome than say in the case of a mislabeled facility door where there's not really necessarily a conversation going on. Here there's, there's almost an active conversation going on, right? The person who told me about this example, they'd go out and they'd like wave to the guys in the trees. Like, hey, Bob, how are you? Oh, hey, how's it going, right? Um, and so they're involved in sort of this conversational cat and mouse game. And um, so there is an invitation to rely sort of on what's being presented, even if nobody, even if everybody knows that the invitation shouldn't be accepted. Um, so that's, that's the why isn't that a lie? And then I think you would also ask, well, why, why do they think this case is sort of uninteresting? That's, that's usually your first clue that something is philosophically going to be very interesting is that most people think it's uninteresting. So, so they think it's uninteresting because it's obviously fine. But there's nothing weird about the law, you know, the law recognizing that or rewarding that or even maybe requiring it, right? Um, and I think that might be an example where the law could require that kind of deception because if you're going to test drive on an open road um, and you want to keep your, your part secret, you got to cover it somehow, um, especially if, you know, there's photographers in the trees. It's interesting because it's hard to explain. It's hard to explain what's wrong. So the the first move there is usually say, well, because the photographers in the trees are, are bad, right? They're doing something wrong. Well, they're not trespassing, right? They're on public property. You don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy if you're out sort of on the open road in a sense. And I, I, I hesitate to use that language because I'm not a Fourth Amendment person and right, I don't want to get pounced on by those guys. But you understand sort of the gist there underlying the intuition. Um, and if you it's not even like there's something there to steal until you have taken the precaution, right? Trade secrets is a, isn't really a property right. It's sort of a quasi-property right. And if you were to just drive without the cover there, then there's nothing to take. And the guys in the trees are just doing standard corporate diligence. So it's it's sort of, it's interesting because precisely because it's kind of hard to explain using the normal resources um, for explaining what's wrong with lying. When I read about that example, I couldn't help thinking about the Christopher case, which you also reference in the paper involving people flying over the plant that doesn't have a roof on it and collecting information. But there, it seems like people have the opposite intuitions. Like, how do you square those two? 
Well, I, I don't know if they have the opposite. I, I think that's part of what I'm saying. They have, I, I think people somehow have the same intuition that the guys flying the airplane over the facility and the guys with the cameras and trees are both, in a sense, sort of bad guys. That's what, in the case of Christopher, makes it makes it compelling that um, there was misappropriation there, right? That the guys flying over a bad guy's ergo misappropriation. And sort of the intuition that the guys and photo- the photographers in the trees are sort of doing something wrong or they're trying to, or they're trying to steal um, is what kind of gets going the intuition that it's obviously okay to use use the car park decoys. So I think I think actually the two are quite similar. And one of the things that I'm I'm planning and sort of in the process of working on in a separate work is thinking about misappropriation but from the lens of sort of what are the limits on trade secret owners Mm. so i think i understand better now but based on the sort of observations you're making in the paper does that suggest that maybe the court should have accepted uh, expected dupont under the circumstances to engage in some kind of deception in order to make out a legitimate trade secret claim that's a great question i I would have to think more carefully about what kind of deception might have worked in that case. And I think one of the reasons the court doesn't necessarily go there is it's it's sort of hard to imagine what they would that's sort of shy of just putting a covering over the facility to begin with. So it's it's a little bit different than driving out on an open road. But I do think that that's another, another case that I'll definitely be engaging with going forward and thinking about sort of, I, it, it's a nice case for one of the things I'm interested in going forward is sort of how what we take to be misappropriation and what we take to be reasonable secrecy precautions are in some ways two sides of the same coin. So going back to the photographer's case and sort of people's reaction to it, what, if anything, do you think that tells us about the way that people think about lying and the rightness or wrongness of lying in the first place? Because it it seems like the, from the way you frame it, it's like some people come at the question from a kind of consequentialist perspective. Others come in front at the question from a more kind of deontological Kantian perspective that, you know, lying is always you know, like per se bad. Like does, you know, what does the example kind of reflect about the way that people think about how to approach the question in the first place? I think it reflects kind of a range of things. So the first, the first and biggest one is sort of this resistance to recognizing lies that we think are okay. And so, so maybe, you know, maybe I'm the one that's here in the wrong and trying to insist that um, we can have sort of a, a morally neutral concept of lying, right? That's, that's not really how the word is, is always used in conversation. And there's, right, it is, it is a morally loaded concept usually. I mean, what does that mean in terms of the paper's bigger implications? Yeah. Well, it's still it's still an instance of the law kind of expressly rewarding or requiring deception. And I think that that is interesting enough to get the conversation off the ground. So maybe maybe I don't have as much of a dog in that fight. I think the other thing uh, it it speaks to is our our sense that lying may be OK to kind of as, as a protective measure. And that's right. One of even on deontological accounts, one of the standard exceptions for lies is the protective lie, right? So everyone's, if they're not already, you should be familiar, right, with Kant's story of like the murderer at the door, and you can't lie to the murderer to protect your friend. Um, and everyone rightly criticizes Kant for this, 
And I think Barbara Creed, when she gave me comments, was, you know, nobody, anyone who takes more than a sentence to dismiss Kant on these grounds, right, has is giving him way too much credit. Okay, maybe two sentences, I think is what she said. <laughs> um, and so it's it's an instance of a protective line. I, I think there is, I think that's another thing that we can kind of take from it. Now, the standard protective story, right, the standard reasons for why the protective lies exception would apply, don't actually apply in the in the car case, which is part of why I find it really interesting, right? Because the photographers aren't really bad guys until you've lied to them. And I think I think that's what makes it so fascinating. So another example that struck me when I was reading your paper was was ghostwriting, right? Because ghostwriting is is also literally a lie, although I don't know that we always think about it that way. But at the same time, people have kind of fraught intuitions about whether it's right or wrong. I, I wonder if you have thoughts about that and, and how it would kind of fit into the framework that you present in the paper. I don't have particular thoughts about ghostwriting. I know that's a pet project of yours uh, under a different under a different name. But I think it, it, it sort of provides a nice example for, for drawing out sort of what the contribution here is. One of the things that you might think about ghostwriting, right, the, the debate there and, and when, when we're thinking about it, it's usually whether it should be allowed, when it's wrong, is it by, you know, are you using, basically, are you using the lie to trick the system, right? So if you're ghost, if you're go, you're having somebody ghostwrite your PhD thesis, and this, this happens, I didn't, not to me, um, but this happens, right? Um, there's a sense in which that tends to get people's intuitions up more because you're tricking, right, the academy into giving you a grant, you know, degree based on something you didn't actually do. What I'm talking about here is, is not kind of a situation where individuals are using lies in order to trick the system, right? This is not, this is not somebody who is incentivized to lie about their immigration status because they feel backed up against a wall or, or to lie in order to get benefits in order, any of those situations where, right, we have, we have these intuitions. They're not, this isn't a trick the system kind of lie. This is, you use lying as a security measure and the court says, sure, we'll rubber stamp that. That's, that's fine. I wonder if you could talk briefly about what kinds of claims you're making in this paper, as opposed to the kinds of claims people might think you're making, but you're not. Yes, the, con- the confusion question. The claim that I am making is that the the sort of traditional framing of the law's relationship to lying as being about this penalizing versus permitting is kind of too simplistic. And even those who, you know, like like Saul Lovemore, law and econ guys who are, are quite happy to admit that they're efficient lies, maybe aren't taking it far enough, right? It's, this isn't just a case of lies that the law incentivizes by by letting you get away with it or by not penalizing you, right? When it's efficient for you to do so. I think it's something actually a little more radical. It's the law actually sort of lending its imprimatur to lies. It, it, you satis- it accepts the lie the fact of lying, not the lie itself, right? Not tricking the system, accepts the lie in satisfaction of a legal requirement. And in some instances, increasingly common instances with the way that cybersecurity is going, uh, may require it uh, in order to get in order to get some benefit. So, so that's sort of the claim. And it's easily confused, right, with this idea of incentivizing. It's not about that. Um, one of the complaints about the reasonable, seek, reasonable precaution requirement is that if we have a a precaution that is cost effective when you take into account legal liability and risk, companies are going to do it anyways, right? If the information is valuable enough, they're just not going to tell you in court 
but they're doing it. Right? They'll tell you about the non-disclosures. So it's really not about incentives. And I think that's that's the thing that's kind of radical about it. But I, I don't I don't take this to mean, right, there's this other debate sort of happening about what the law's attitude towards lying is, whether the default of the law is sort of anti-lie that then makes exceptions for certain permitted lies, or whether the law is totally neutral about lying, right? Given the First Amendment and the best remedy for true, you know, for lies is more, more speech, right? Best, best remedy for false speech is more speech, you know, that the law is totally neutral and then it picks out certain lies for penalizing. I think this counts as, I, I don't take a side in that debate, but I think this counts strongly in favor of the latter view at a time when I think the primary argument in favor of that view about the neutrality of the law, that more, the antidote, antidote to false speech is more speech, right? That's sort of eroding. <laughs> We're sort of seeing the problem with that, that line. Um, and I, I think this constitutes evidence, at least at the start, in favor of, of that view. I guess I could be confused with taking that view, but I'm just saying, no, this is just strong evidence of that view. We, we've got more work to do before we can settle the score. In closing, while reading this paper, I was, my mind was going like a million different directions because there were so many really fascinating ideas being sort of teased out. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about where you think you're going to go next. Yeah. So I'm so glad you asked the question that way and not the way that I normally get it, which is, so it's trade secret law. Should we fix it? <laughs> Cause I, I, I don't, I don't take a view on that. I don't, I don't know enough yet to take a view on that. I really think that one of the important, the important next question is sort of not when and whether lying is justified, but practical questions of how. How can you use deception or lying in a way that mitigates risk? How do you anticipate what kinds of risks there are going to be and what the likelihood is? Sort of, sort of in the same um, vein that you might in, in tort theory. So that's, that's sort of the practical end. But I also think that there's a broader phenomenon here. And so one of the things I'm turning to next is, is the question that you, you were raising in, in one of our earlier questions discussion or you're pushing towards like this requiring thing can you say more about that um and so sort of a more full-throated uh discussion in defense i think of where this is going to happen particularly as um as the wall as even like the wall street journal now is recognized deception is the next big thing in cybersecurity. uh i i'm i'm teaching torts i i think <laughs> that's going to be a logical next direction that i i had in. awesome well courtney thanks so much for coming on the show and I can't wait to read your your follow-up papers because this one was really provocative, thoughtful, and and engaging. And I, I hope readers will check it out because we only scratched the surface. Thanks so much, Brian. Really glad to be here.
was all aglow And heaven was in your eyes That night that you told me Those little white lies The stars all seemed to know That you didn't mean all those sighs That night that you told me Those little white lies I try, but there's no forgetting When evening appears I sigh, but there's no regretting In spite of my tears The devil was in your heart But heaven was in your eyes That night that you told 